So let's get her going, I guess. Um, oh, I guess first I need my notes. Because for a three-hour and 40-minute movie, I ain't winging it. Welcome to VCR, a vintage cinema rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Jason. And I'm Blake. And this is going to be a long movie. <laughs> <laughs> a long movie? A long, podcast a long podcast about a long movie. Yeah, we make no apologies for how long this episode ends up coming out. This movie is three hours and 42 minutes. And for the most part, doesn't feel like that necessarily. But they give you a little break here and there. Yeah, uh, literal breaks yeah, uh, yeah. throughout the film. <laughs> yeah, I actually kind of wish we still had mo- like Interludes? epic movies like this with yeah. that interlude, just to get up and like go have a go make a drink or some popcorn, get some popcorn in the theaters, whatever. It definitely adds to the viewing experience for sure, and it almost makes it feel more live showy. Yeah, if, yeah. if that makes sense. Like if you go and see a play, often they'll have like that that intermission in the middle where you mm. can go up and do that kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's definitely a callback to that era as well, pre pre film era. Yeah, yeah. I wonder like when they stopped doing that because this was like one of the last like epic movies. Or even just know. like <laughs> a movie that long that was so good. Yeah, like I mean, you can obviously make the comparisons, and we are going to make the comparison later, probably to something like the Titanic or the Lord of the Rings series. Even Gladiator um, is very yeah, yeah. comparable. Yeah, for sure. But so, nothing that was almost like four hours. Yeah. Well, the Lord of the Rings extended so yeah, four hours, and yeah. and they're a viewing experience worth watching. But anyway, this is our first of our 1959 VCR at the Oscars series. So we're talking Ben Hur, the one of the most critically acclaimed films of all time. Won so many awards, just yeah, crazy. The record for almost 40 years yeah. um, before the Titanic comes out, and I'm extremely excited to talk about this. This is easily one of the most ambitious and epic films that I've ever seen, period. Just, like, massive and epic are just the, like, the key words for me, just how big this was. They went big on everything. Yeah, the scale is, it'll put you in awe. And even for a movie that came out over 60 years ago, Mm -hmm. it still gives you that sense of awe. Like, We'll talk later about what holds up and what doesn't, but suffice to say, almost everything in the movie itself holds up to today's standards. Yeah. So we'll get into it. Ben-Hur is an epic story of revenge and redemption set in the year 1 AD about Judah Ben-Hur, a Jewish nobleman. His childhood best friend returns as a Roman tribute, looking for his help in bringing order to the region. Unwilling to sell out his people, the two split and enter into a clash of ideologies filled with character, drama, action, and violence. This movie is is this grand scope, and it, it gives you a good look into what Roman life was like then. And what I really love about this is, 
for a lot of the film, even though we're looking at the Roman Empire, we're looking at the Roman Empire through the lens of the conquered people in Judea and other regions or out in the seas, the the ships. Like yeah. we get we get a very different look at how Rome is run, um, versus other a lot of other films that are about Roman culture centered mm. around the elites of Rome within Rome and how their kind of dealings between each other works. Whereas in this, we get to see other perspectives at this time. Yeah. And it's all kind of filtered directly through the characters. Uh, Masala is his best friend who is just the prime example of Roman ambition Mm -hmm. and drive and um, like belief in what it means to be Roman. And then, opposite him judah ben-hur he is just so ingrained in his culture and he knows that nothing could stamp them out yeah he he's the he's a jewish prince he's obviously very wealthy important in judea and so to have his best friend from his childhood who who very quickly we we feel like you can feel the connection between the two of them when they first kind of meet again as adults yeah just like instant best friends again yeah and then they also very quickly see the changes in each other after growing up yeah and where their lives have each pulled each other um and what drives them is very different as well mizal is a, a very ambitious person and and is looking at Judea as his way to leave his mark on the world and his way to get the approval of the emperor and potentially even his family as well. His father was the governor of Judea, I believe, Mm -hmm. previously, and that's why him and Ben-Hur had that relationship as children, both coming from generally wealthy families living, growing up together like that. And that's, again, before maybe some of those prejudices start to develop as well right there's that childhood innocence yeah yeah and and then and that that's what they remember and reconnect with in the mm-hmm. beginning and then it goes into all the differences and like automatically masala wants judah to flip on whoever in the region whichever jews are causing um problems for the romans yeah. he wants him to sell them out and he's just not going to do it yeah, I think that's all good. The uh, the other parts of the plot that I maybe wanted to just touch on again, like the perspectives thing, what I really enjoy is that we see Jerusalem at this time. You know, like you and I both grew up in religious families, more or less, and so we, we have a general idea of what's going on at this point, mm-hmm. but you never really connect the idea that Rome and Jerusalem are very different, like very different places at that time. This is the first time that I ever really thought about that and how how different each location is, how even though they're so different and so far apart, they're so connected at that point in time. Especially Um, when when you're looking into this movie, it's it's a tale of the story of Christ, but adjacent to it. Yeah. So that was super cool because in the very beginning we see the nativity scene yeah. and the three kings, three wise men go mm-hmm. to visit him. And then we find out that one of the wise men is one of the characters in this movie. And then he c- connects with um, Judah later on and 
so the whole story is set like intermingling with the same time period of uh, Jesus. Yeah, and that was the other part of the plot that I wanted to discuss is that we do get this non-centered focus. Like he's always kind of, Jesus is always kind of in our peripherals throughout the film and and we see him at different points in time. He's utilized as a force extremely mm. well. Yeah. Um, he's never really, there's only really one point in time where he's maybe pushing the plot forward per se, but he's just, he's just such an overwhelming force and such a big idea at this point that yeah. as Judah is interacting with different people in different areas of the land, he's constantly hearing of this Messiah, basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and he becomes kind of a figurehead of his culture in the same right, like at the same time, like yeah. he's kind of equal in a different way yeah. at that period throughout. So we see him like rise within rise and fall within uh, being this Jewish prince. Yeah. And the film itself never really feels preachy or over religious either. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to be, you know, somebody extremely, christian or catholic or whatever to get a lot of enjoyment out of this film i i absolutely loved this film yeah it's just like a really in-depth i don't know it's just really good yeah it's really good all right let's move into characters and people you may know so obviously we've talked a lot about judah ben-hur played by charlton heston Mm -hmm. um one of the greats of the 50s and 60s we've already watched a film by him, Soylent Green. We were both kind of lukewarm on that one, but he's also very much known for the Planet of the Apes series, which is one of my all-time favorite sci-fis. We see a very different character in Judah Ben-Hur than in Soylent Green from Char- with Charleston Heston here. Like, yeah. very different ideologies and and mannerisms. He's somebody who you can be very empathetic towards throughout mm-hmm. the film. Like, even when he's got the drive for vengeance, like you can really like understand where he's coming from. Yeah. Um, yeah. He gets pushed around for years. Um, yeah. And he acts each part of it so well. Yeah. Like the rise, the fall, everything, his uh, mannerisms and everything are so in tune with that. Yeah. When he, when he looks Mizala in the eyes and says, mm-hmm. well, then I'm against you. You're like, yeah. Ooh, yeah. like you can see the hatred. Yeah. So he's got a high moral character, those family values. He comes from a wealthy family. We already mentioned he's a Jewish prince. So that's that's kind of our scope of, of Judah Ben-Hur. Haya Harriet plays Esther, Ben-Hur's love interest throughout the film. She is an Israeli actress. She didn't have a large acting career, actually, really. So not really, there's, yeah. there's really not much you may know her from. However, interesting enough, she was actually the last surviving member of the credited cast when she passed away in February 2021. Wow. Yeah. Very... I did not see that. That's yeah. unreal. Yeah, kind of interesting. And I have actually seen her on a poster, like, just looking through old movies, for, like, as we have been, I've seen her, kind of, her face. Mm-hmm. It's the one, uh, J- Journey Beneath the Desert. If you look at her profile, like that just looks iconic, almost like like a Cleopatra or something. But she just is like very old school actress, like that whole vibe. Yeah. So next, Mizala. We have to talk about Mizala, played by Stephen Boyd. Uh, Mizala is the son of the previous Roman governor of Judea. He's very passionate and ambitious 
about Rome. He's the military leader coming in, trying to bring order to Roman order to Judea, as well as being the childhood friend of Judah and, and the clash that they have there. Th- this character is just unchecked ambition, mm-hmm. basically. and Everything and- is for the empire and for himself yeah and like it's the same thing to him anything that he wants is beneficial to the empire every like he's just so driven yeah yeah i don't know if we've ever seen a more driven character in film before and he puts aside almost everything that's human he just drops his childhood best friend like it's nothing and he grew up in this region and he just feels nothing for the people. Yeah. He won't give any mercy to anybody. And he wants to rule with fear. Yeah, and that's a that's a good way to put it. Because he has his idea of what Rome is and what Rome should be. And if you're not willing to get in line with that, he's just going to walk right over you to yeah. get what he wants. Yeah, and he plays it so well. He does play it extremely well. I don't really have a whole lot to say about where you may know Stephen Boyd. He was actually in the film The Fall of Rome, which came out a few years later. We're going to talk about that one a little bit later because that's kind of an interesting legacy for this film. Genghis um, Khan. Yeah. He was in that as well. Uh, I don't know. I don't think it was a big character, but uh, that's another, if you're into old movies, that's probably one to check out. Yeah, Stephen Boyd just has, he has this look of like a, a Roman god, kind yeah, of. Like, he's yeah. got, like, a, a weird, like, chiseled kind of face. The butt chin um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that um, you would picture from, like, a, a Roman sculpture. Yeah, and actually for the casting of him, Paul Newman, who, from our uh, previous mm. movie, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, he turned down the role of Masala because he didn't have the legs for Roman costumes. <laughs> <laughs> That's that is such a Butch Cassidy thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he he just has that comedy. But um, anyways, so he didn't play this, obviously. Yeah, Steve Stephen Boyd was kind of brought in late. We're gonna talk a little bit about that in the effects and filming. I think. Um, unfortunately, part of the reason why you may not know of him is he passed away in 1977 at the age of 45. He had a massive heart attack. Yeah, so somebody that we may have gotten more of a little bit later in life um, that uh, tragically was taken too early. Our next character, I this is, I think, the last big character and person you may know that I want to talk about, uh, unless you have another, but Hugh Griffith, playing Sheik Ilderim, um, he is a... He's an ally of Judah's a little bit later in the film. Um, he doesn't have a ton of screen time, but his personality is yeah, just so yeah. big in the film that it, he steals every single scene that yeah, he's in. So memorable. And yeah. just, it's, no one else in the movie was really, he wasn't necessarily comedic, yeah. but he brought a certain amount of like hope and joy and, and just charm. like fun. Yeah, and charm. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. because Ben-Hur is kind of a stoic character yeah. and Stephen Boyd is this unchecked, ambitious character with no moral standing and, and they're just such big personalities yeah. and then we've got Hugh Griffith playing like smug rich middle eastern character 
The only thing that I really want to say at this point, this is the only part of the film for me personally that doesn't hold up, is the very obvious brown face of Hugh Griffith. Mm -hmm. I believe you said he was an Irish actor? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely doesn't hold up by today's standards. It's very noticeable, but at the time, that's the way Hollywood worked. What what are you going to do, right? Like, there's we can't go back into the past and change. Yeah. We can only... Move, move forward, forward and, yeah. and be better. So, um, the I'll last, sorry. You have ahead. another? I have, I have one other character. We should talk about Jesus really quickly. Yeah. Doesn't play a well-known actor. They actually never show Jesus's face throughout the film. And mm. that's something that they uh, did intentionally. I think. Yeah, they and did it, intentionally. And it works. And it works extremely well. And he does never talk or he does talk, but we don't hear it ever. Mm. It makes him feel larger than life the way they portray yeah. him. Yeah. And all you see are the reactions of like benevolence, the people in awe of him. Yeah. And um, he was actually, they found him while they were filming or like as they were picking out sets or something that uh, some of the executives or whoever was casting went to the opera and he, he was just an opera singer interesting do you have another character do you want to talk about then in a certain sense just that there's 300 <laughs> speaking roles in this wow film. i didn't read that i knew yeah. that there was like something like ten thousand extras, extras yeah, yeah which is in itself mind-blowing yeah in in today's films, you do not see that. Even with a film like Lord of the Rings, the amount of technical trickery that goes on to make this film seem like it's filled with people is very different from how they would have had to do it back then because you can't you can't CGI that. No, yeah. <laughs> like, in the 80s, like, let's say the first Star Wars, mm -hmm. um, they paint... That was a bunch of painted-on things yeah. that were, like put behind the film and just to trick you into thinking that there were rows on rows of stormtroopers. Yeah. But this actually had 10,000 people, like not all on screen at once, but at certain scenes, there's like 1500 actual actors on screen. Yeah. Like for example, the chariot scene, one of the most famous yeah. scenes in all of cinema. I can't remember how many thousands, maybe a couple thousand people in the stands there cheering. And, and I think they said uh, 1500 per day yeah or per scene yeah just think about yeah. how ambitious that is to get everybody in costume get everybody mm -hmm. doing what you need them to do at the right time yeah and there's actually 365 speaking parts which is so, wild yeah the amount of money they put into this it was it was probably one of the most expensive films at the time i believe it was it the was, most yeah. expensive film at the time and it um, saved mgm yeah, they put their last fifteen million into creating this film, one of the biggest risks of all time. But its initial release made one hundred and forty-six million, ten times its budget. Yeah, it was one of those life experiences. We haven't had a whole lot of those. I guess the biggest ones in our lifetimes, film-wise, would be something like Avatar? the last avatar the last avengers movie like these the are new like spider-man movie the, yeah the new spider-man movie most recently the lord of the rings movies stuff like that like stuff that becomes a cultural phenomenon yeah. this was one of those films this was a film that you probably talked about at the water cooler for the next six months and probably played in cinema for those next six yeah, months yeah. so 
it so massively important. And we'll get into the legacy yeah. a little bit later. The director. I didn't talk about the director actually. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you have so, something? In- uh, first, I uh, there. This is based on a book of the same name by um, Lou Wallace's. Yeah, Lou Wallace wrote the book originally, and he based it on. Um, he was involved in an intense battle called the Shiloh Battle in the Civil War, I believe. Yeah, he was a Union general in the Civil yeah. War. Yeah, and he like he had a crazy life. He also was. Um, like one, he was involved in um, the U.S. speaking with people in the Ottoman Empire, mm. but he's just like very a legend. Uh, yeah, he's a big guy in history, and he just decided to start writing after after all of that. There's a lot of his own life stories influenced mm. in um, in the movie, but going back to William Wyler, he didn't want to do this at first. He didn't love the script. Mm. And this, it took about seven years for them to get this movie moving. So he actually joined on because the movie Ten Commandments had recently come out mm. and done well. Because also it was, starring Charleston Heston. Yeah, and it's a biblical epic as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's as epic. I don't think so. But it can't be as there. epic as not, this. Not as epic. Yeah. <laughs> he hated the director of the Ten Commandments, so he's like, "I'm gonna one up this guy." Nice. Yeah. And so he got the biggest pay to a director in history at, at that point, $350,000, which is like hmm. uh, an insane amount for our time now. And he got 8% of like gross profits. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Yeah. There are points in time that the person and I that we were watching together was saying, I kind of almost wish that they explored this a little bit more, but they didn't have time to explore that yeah, yeah. <laughs> because they had so much to explore. Yeah. So what I'll say about the length of the movie is that basically we are, we have lost the, we don't do that anymore. The where we actually, span. Yeah. Whether it's forced on us by the uh, studios or whatever, or mm-hmm. if it's actually us who's not as interested in it, mm-hmm. but they like we have like montage scenes where they could have just covered like so much of what happened to Ben Hur in montage scenes but they actually go into it and you see him um become a row like a rower in a Roman boat yeah in the galleys galleys yeah yeah yeah. he's a slave in the galleys for three years and so you have that whole thing and that's a whole epic scene in itself yeah and then uh he's goes to rome and he becomes the uh like the son of a um of a noble basically yeah Uh, high up roman guy and he and there's all the discussion about how he becomes a famous charioteer in rome yeah yeah so we we actually get to see a little bit more into those extra scenes that we don't normally get to and those are those kind of scenes where you're like ah like i wish i had a little bit more of that but with an almost four hour runtime it's it's really hard and yeah you got to empathize with the people who are editing this film down this is one of the most filmed there was i can't remember how much footage was filmed for this but it was an insane amount of of footage yeah and it it was a million dollars worth of just film yeah so they they went through a lot (laughs) we've gotten a little off topic here but Yeah, yeah let's get into who this movie is for so the movie itself is pegged as a religious epic that's the greatest way to explain the movie 
is it's it's always Jesus is kind of in the peripherals throughout. Um, it's during the time of of his life uh, in where the Roman Empire is. Um, it's also just so epic on such a grand scale. There's so many big scenes. The the scores we'll get to later is so bombastic, so large. Um, it always just each each scene from one to the next just feels so heavy, like so weighted, like there's so much happening. Yeah, and it all feels very real. The sets are amazing. Yeah. Um, the costumes, and, yeah, like the the color of the costumes and everything, like that's one of the first things that I noticed is when the yeah. Roman Empire's entering Judea, the the costumes, like the coloring, I was like, wow, this film looks amazing. Yeah, the the like the metal breastplates, yeah, breastplates, yeah, they all looked actual, like they they could actually protect. Mm-hmm. They weren't just fake props. Yeah. And there was actually 100,000 props made for this. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, 1 million props, 100,000 unif- er, uh, costumes. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> and they all looked amazing. So yeah. besides that. Yeah, and probably historically accurate for the most part. I yeah. didn't look into that side of things, but I'm sure they did a lot of research into that. We'll get into some of the historic accuracy of maybe some of the other stuff later. I think if you're a fan of the director's cut version of Kingdom of Heaven, and you've got to asterisk the director's cut, mm. um, the original is, from what I hear, a just choppy mess, but the yeah. director's cut, I think you're going to love this movie because it follows a very similar trajectory. It's about that kind of religion within this this time of human existence mm. and the part that it plays throughout people's lives. And then the rise and fall of gladiator. If you liked gladiator, you'll yeah. love this movie and just overall epic movies. Really? Yeah. If, if you're a fan of history, if you're a fan of the Roman empire specifically, this is something that you got to see at some point in your life. And it's really interesting too, because it doesn't paint a rosy picture of Roman life. It points the a picture of the pers- or through the perspective of the people conquered by Rome. Yeah, yeah. which is really interesting. <laughs> One of our friends put this uh, when I said we were going to be watching Ben Hur. He said, "Oh, you mean the Chariot movie?" And oh, yes, yeah, yeah. This is the Chariot movie. <laughs> that Chariot scene was just absolutely unreal. the The real, like the realistic uh, portrayal of these crazy chariot races. It's similar to Gladiators um, in Gladiator. Yeah, like, it felt very realistic. Well, and and this is 1959. This is before the idea of cgi has crossed the minds of most of hollywood and this scene alone the amount of footage that was filmed the amount of prep work that went into this the amount of work that went in building the um yeah the set was you you could make an entire film a documentary about that one scene alone which is incredible so yes this is the chariot movie (laughs) for me this is this movie holds up extremely well. The effects are so groundbreaking. You're honestly going to constantly sitting there just wondering how they were able to do things the way they were done at that point in time. They just did them for real. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. 
and it looks incredible. Yeah. It looks better than CGI today. Yeah, yeah. So how did they get those chariots and the the four horses pulling them? How did they get them built properly to make them so realistic? They were almost exact replicas, probably. And yeah, you said if fans of Gladiator are really going to like this, I've got a really interesting arc of how this film connects to Gladiator that mm. we'll talk about in Legacy. Cool. I also wrote down Life of Brian. The Monty Python movie definitely yeah. heavily parodied something like this as well. And the, the time around that it's based in. I really like Monty Python, so yeah, yeah. I wanted to bring up Life of Brian. <laughs> That's fair. Oh, film history buffs. Yes. Anybody into film history, obviously this is for you. It's on everyone's list. It's on the top 100 list of like all time yeah. best movies. And I it's one that I feel like a lot of film um nerds haven't watched mm -hmm. like us we should have watched this before this yeah because it's but there's obviously a lot of movies to get through to have like a full expansive knowledge of all film but this is one of them that has to be like higher up on your list than you currently have it now yes i 100 percent agree and stand by that my friend who I watched it with is or was a film student and hadn't seen this before him and I sat down and watched mm. this together. And he was in awe by the end. And he's somebody who's been critical of older films in the past. And he had one critical point, which I do kind of agree with, and we'll get into later. But that's, uh, that's kind of where, as a film student, he came in and he was like, wow, what a movie. Okay, let's talk when to watch. So, we've already mentioned this before. The film's runtime is three and a half hours long. You need to be prepared for this epic. Yeah, you can't just watch this on your lunch break. No. And this is a movie that really should be shared, I think. Like, I watched it with a friend who I knew was going to love it, mm. um, who's a big movie fan, a student of film. I think our other friend who mentioned as a chariot movie, the reason why he knew of this is because it's his dad's favorite movie mm. of all time. So this could be something that you watch with your parents or your grandparents and you'll get maybe some memories too from back then and when they saw this and, and maybe some thoughts and feelings that they had when they saw this. Yeah, on online I saw that this was a huge rerun around Easter time in the States. Mm. So a lot of people have memories of that being on people who are obviously a little bit older than us. Um, that that was like every Easter, they were just pumped for Ben-Hur. This has to be like a five-hour movie with commercials. Yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> Can, Can you, you imagine? imagine? Yeah. This would be like putting on a football game while you're having Easter dinner. It's yeah. just kind of on. Although I will make the argument that this is kind of um, similar to something like a Forrest Gump, where you can probably turn this on at pretty much any point in the movie and get pretty into it at any point in time. There's just so many big moments that happen throughout the film and set pieces that you're gonna get you're gonna get hooked at any point, really. In also support of the long runtime, the film does have an intermission. It's about around the two hour mark, so you could break this into two parts. I think that. Uh, you could definitely break it into two nights if you absolutely needed to. Mm -hmm. 
that's what Jess and I did for the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings because those are four-hour movies as well. Yeah. And they break it up. They have kind of an intermission because you have to put two discs in. But yeah. um, but discs. it felt like a good cutoff, and I think that this feels like a good cutoff point at where they put the intermission as well. I felt like it was about two-thirds through, yeah. though. So, yeah, you could really get into it. The first act, you're just developing like the understanding of what's going on, and then second act you're getting more into um like the build-up and then so you might that being a cutoff time for that you come back the next day having thought about like oh what's gonna happen yeah i i could make an argument to watch it like that i it's almost like you end the first season of your favorite show and it ends on like not necessarily cliffhanger but something like big and you're like i need to know what happens next and that's where it ends and it's really well cut there um because that's actually something that i was gonna say is that you know it's two hour mark it's not quite the halfway point in the movie it's it's past that halfway point so really interesting and really well done where to watch you have to currently rent it unfortunately i i rented it on amazon and the rental version was fantastic it it's so clear the the score and everything comes through extremely well on there so yeah i would recommend viewing it through there okay i think this is the spot where we cut it off we were as spoiler free as we could up until this point let's dive into things with a spoiler positive in mind so if you haven't seen the film I cannot recommend this movie enough. Yeah. This is something you have to see some point in your life. Block so. out four hours or yeah. two sets of two hours because you're gonna need a little time to recover after the third or the second set. Yeah. Second watch. Second act. <laughs> yes. Um Well, if you've never seen it, you wanna watch it before we get into spoilers. We'll see you later. We'll see you in maybe a couple nights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Alright. Let's dive into things. Do we want to start with maybe themes first? Yeah, I'm down. The first theme is honor that I wanted to discuss a little bit. And it's it's the pride that Judah has in his people and contrasting that with the pride that and honor that Mizala has in himself and his ideology of the Roman Empire and how those two ideas clash. And that sets the film in the direction that we go in. I would say that they're both almost equal in that they have like the equal intensity, the equal yeah. amount just with different weights behind them. Right. And, uh, Masala obviously has so much weight behind him cause he is the conqueror here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Judah is trying to save his people, but so, and preserve his people yeah. and their ideas and their culture. Yeah, and Mizala, he's he's coming into a Judea that is already controlled by the Roman Empire, but mm. he wants to leave his mark on the world. And, and he wants to be the guy who the Emperor of Rome comes to see mm. and is like, you've done such a good job here for Rome. Yeah, so. because the populace at this point are fairly rebellious. They're not, uh, all, it's not all at war because they've already been conquered, but they're not lying down. Yeah. They're not, and that's what he wants. And that's the vision I think that he has. Like, he'll get his full honor once. 
the people are lying down and he can present that to Caesar or the emperor fully. So the the next theme that I wanted to discuss was revenge. Mm. So, you know, we, we get a little bit further into the movie. We have very quickly the relationship between Mizala and Ben-Hur fall apart. Yeah. Which which happens relatively quickly. Like it, uh, And actually very interesting here, in the original script, they actually didn't have that first interaction together where they have mm. fun together. Yeah, it just yeah. goes right to where they fall apart. Oh, okay. But the director felt like they needed a little bit of something before that to see that they were, in fact, very close yeah. at one point in their lives. And that's actually a comment that Mike had when we were watching was that, wow, like this this relationship degraded very quickly. Yeah, very quickly. Because obviously they didn't have one up until this point except for these memories. Yeah. And like Masala is supposed to come over and see Judah's family and remember all the good times they had together. And but that's spoiled quickly as well. Yeah. And um yeah, just like you could see in that quick little first meeting, just like the two best friends from childhood, they throw the spears together and yeah. like get they're just flooded with that old old nostalgia. Feeling. Yeah, yeah, nostalgia. And and I think just about everybody can relate to that. Yeah, yeah. Especially now in these crazy times like you know, you have these ideas of what these people were like when you were kids and and you grow up and you maybe grow apart from other people and it's hard. It's hard seeing mm. people in lights that you maybe didn't expect to see them in yeah, or, I, and disagree with. It's like if one of your old best friends uh, comes to you and is like, hey, I have a quick way to make some money. <laughs> it's, it, that's like how quickly it turned. It's like uh, Masala came in with the MLM scheme. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a great it, way. Because it happened quick. Yeah. But yeah. Um, and actually, this is a little, since we're spoiler free, we're just talking everything. Yeah, yeah. One of the writers who was writing Masala's parts you already know this. I know exactly where yeah, you're going. Yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> I know we were going to discuss this at some he, point. And and I f- I picked up on it quickly. I picked up on yeah. it quickly as well. Yeah. I will agree with so, you. So uh, the writer added a little extra homoerotic uh, vibes to Masala towards yeah. Judah. Yeah. And they didn't even tell uh, Judah's actor Charlton, Charlton Heston. Heston because he may have been homophobic. I think. He has actually. I mean, it's div- a sign of the times. Yeah, right? it's like, a we don't sign need of the to times. go into that detail. Yeah, exactly. So, anyways, uh, so there is a little like there's almost like Masala is a spurned lover. Yes, especially, and, he, and it feels like that. Like yeah, you, you're yeah. constantly like, yeah, like just I don't know the eye contact he the, makes, how like close the, they are. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, and yeah, and he's he just goes off in these like jealous rages yeah. and just does things where you're like, oh, like why? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's such a great portrayal. And of, it's it's subtle, but it's not. Like, yes. There's a lot to it where you're like, mm, maybe. And it's not ever talked about or anything. It's yeah. just kind of there. Yeah, so that initial scene really set the rest of the movie where they are so against each other. Yeah, that confrontation they, is, is again, one of those memorable moments in movie history yeah. where Mazzola looks Ben-Hur in the eye and says... You're either with me or a, you're against me. Yeah. And Ben Hur just realizes that his friend is not the person that he remembers anymore. And he says, well, then I guess I'm against you. Yeah. And that's how, like, they part ways. Yeah, that was perfect. Yeah. 
and you could, the you could feel the tension yeah. in the air. <laughs> <laughs> the intensity with which he like they're they're especially Charlton Heston's facial expressions, they're so exaggerated. Yeah. And not not over the top really, almost. Yeah. In my opinion, but uh he he just portrays like the depth of the emotion well. Yeah. I agree. It's such a memorable scene and when you watch it, you'll know what we're talking about. And so that revenge plays such a big role because Mizala ends up being the main reason why Ben-Hur is essentially becomes a slave and his whole family is locked up and he has no idea what happens to them for years. Mm -hmm. And he's put in not even like a good slave household. It's not like he goes to Rome at first and lives in some nice home for some nice wealthy people he's in the galleys of the roman navy yeah and we see the amount of physical strain that something like that puts you under and mental because Mm -hmm. the uh we'll get into that scene in a bit i think i don't know yeah that's one of my favorite scenes of the entire movie yeah yeah so uh i wanted to just go back to the um why he gets so they they split they part ways they're not going to help each other but they weren't they didn't hate each other at this point they they were against each other but they they were like you you do your thing i'll do my thing if like there was nothing there ways yeah so it wasn't friendly by any means but they weren't hateful yet and then uh the new roman consul comes in after um masala just arrived oh yeah right did you see the tile like when she moved the tile at first it's kind of shaky yeah so the uh the roman consul comes by and he's coming into the town where uh judah has this mansion his sister accidentally knocks off a tile and it falls on the uh new roman consul consul leader whatever his name is and he looks like he's dead. Yeah, like, <laughs> right he, he almost that, killed so. him. So, and it was was an accident. But then Masala takes it. At, he he Masala finds out it's an accident. But then he still has to um, enact the Roman justice. Well, and he takes goes the extra miles. Well, right, like he he sees this as punishing Judah for being against him. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, like you said, he's also trying to get ahead a little bit, showing that he's this you know hard Tyrant. leader yeah, yeah yeah um and he's got a firm grasp on the on region the way and the are. people yeah 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 so that's when we we see judah be sold into servitude and his family's locked up and and judah gives his line of like i'm not like i'll be back basically yeah, <laughs> yeah. and Masal is like man nobody survives the galleys you're you're gone yeah and yeah, but Charleston or sorry, Judah just keeps his faith and Yeah, it's well it's it's well, the faith, but it's the revenge. Yeah. He's so he hates Mazala yeah. so much that he has the will to live. So it's a combination, I think, because he has that, mm-hmm. but then on his way to being sold into slavery, he's like chained up with like mm. fifty other slaves on their way to wherever. Yeah. And they pass through uh Nazareth. Je- Nazareth where they pass Jesus, um, his the like workshop, store. yeah, his carpenter <laughs> shop, and then uh, the Roman guards don't let 
Judah have any water, but then Jesus comes over, gives them some water, and then you just see this drastic change from a completely like disheveled and, a defeated man. Yeah. Judah and then Jesus gives him water and you just see like he just becomes strong and yeah. he has that faith and the vengeance which is very like old biblical. Yeah. Um like the common, Old Testament. The Old Testament. Yeah, yeah he's like, "Oh, I feel that." <laughs> He's invigorated. Well, oh, what a great scene that is too. Yeah. And with the Roman, um, the the Roman, I don't know what you want to call him, slave, captor or whatever. Yeah. And he's like, no, you don't feed it, drink or let him drink water. Yeah. And then he looks over at Jesus and like, he just, just like melts yeah, yeah. in front of Jesus. Yeah. There. He just sees something that he doesn't understand. He just yeah. turns around and leaves it as it is. Yeah. It's again, it's Jesus as a force. Yeah. Which yeah. Is really exactly. Cool. Yeah. And then he becomes a slave rower in the galleys. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the galleys a little bit. Because, again, this is my one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie from the start of him in the galleys right to the, the rescue scene. So we see him in the galleys. The new commander of the Roman Navy comes to inspect his slaves yeah. in the galley. And he takes an eye, or uh, he sees the the will to live mm-hmm. in Ben Hur, where he doesn't see it in the rest of them. Yeah. Um, and everyone and, else is just so defeated, and they're they're full on slaves. Yeah. But he has this hate in his eyes. Yeah, and he's like, he's like, I like that. I like that in you, that hatred, because that will keep you living in this horrible place, and it'll keep you doing what I need you to do, essentially. Yeah. And then. We have the commander push the slaves to near-death exhaustion. Yeah, yeah. He takes them from regular rowing speed to battle speed all the way to up ramming to speed. ramming speed. Yeah. And you just see them get way more more and more intense. And there's people, there's other slaves like dropping out. They yeah. can't continue. And um, Judah... He's just filled with this hate and vengeance and yeah. belief, and he just he will not stop. And uh, so he they talk later after this little scene. Yeah, because the we find out that there's an approaching enemy ships coming towards the, the navy. Macedonians, I believe. Yeah, I don't remember the exactly who, but um, which was like happening at that time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, all re- all rooted in history, and he actually decides to unclasp Ben Hur's unchain him, unchain yeah, him, yeah, 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 which is a really interesting thing because you don't see that with any of the other slaves. It's kind of like, oh, like that was weird. It's yeah, it's because he saw his drive and his faith, and yeah. so uh, his name's Quintus Arius, the yeah. commander of the fleets, and he offers him he sees that spark in him first when he goes through that whole exercise of the speed like ramming speed and everything and then he brings him into his office and he's like uh, i'll let you be one of my gladiators yeah at, or chariot racers i'm not sure if there was it was a gladiator at it that was point gladiator yep. yeah and so um judah was like no like i'd rather stay here because i might survive i've been here 
he finds out he's been there for three years. Yeah. Nobody else makes it past a year in the galleys. Yeah. He's been rowing for three years and still has that drive in him. So Quintus sees like there's something special about this guy. Yeah. And then uh, Judas says like like no, I'm not gonna be a gladiator and face like almost certain death. I like here my God can protect me. Right. Yeah, and it's really cool when he unclasps him because you're like, oh, like, you know, as soon as you see that, you're like, yeah, if if anything happens to this ship, these slaves are dead. Nobody's coming to unlock their keys. You're getting out and saving yourself at that point. They're they're chained to their oars. Yeah, yeah. They're and only the Romans will survive. Yeah, so they're and- going down with the ship. Yeah, exactly. So that's a really cool moment. And then we get the battle scene, which is epic, like yeah. the ship coming towards them and then yeah. crashing in. Oh my God. That like, I, I, I was, I think like out of breath watching that, like <laughs> that, that moment when the ship hits, like I was like, oh my God, like things are happening right now. This is huge. Yeah. yeah I was pumped. And especially the, the realism. I don't know how they did yeah. that. They're like, they're filming these things and they're so realistic where the one like each of these ships is like has like a battering ram on the front that just wrecks the other ship and it comes right through the wall behind judah and um water starts pouring in and there's slaves everywhere and there's fire and yeah it's just all crazy and the different the legions and the different navies are fighting each other up on the main level while Mm. the ship is sinking yeah it's wild this is uh, this is one of the greatest scenes in all of cinema in my opinion especially for like how it's just all real like real action it's so good it's one of my favorite scenes i did want to actually mention here we didn't mention him earlier but jack hawkins is the one playing quintus arius Mm -hmm. and he's underrated in this film in my opinion like he doesn't get brought up as much as charlton heston or hugh griffith does but Mm -hmm. his character is starts off as kind of an evil bastard Pushing yeah, yeah. these slaves to their limits and probably yeah. killing a couple of the slaves in the process to becoming the father figure of Charlton Heston. Yeah. And and maybe this is some sort of like biblical, biblical arc where he finds forgiveness. He tries to kill himself, but Charlton Heston pulls him out of that. Yeah, after they escape from the wreckage of like the ship sinking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What I would say in line with that is that we see that not all Romans are the way that Masala is. Yes. Because in the office after, uh, like, when Judah comes to his quarters and, like, he had the chance to kill him. He's like, why didn't you kill me? Mm. He's like, if I killed you, I'd be dead right now, mm-hmm. too. And then, so they talk a little bit more. And uh, Quintus is not, like, in all awe and belief of the Roman way he doesn't believe anything. He's almost like a little nihilistic. He's more philosophical, more questioning. Mm-hmm. And so that's where that allowed that little wiggle room that allowed him to see Judah as something other than just a slave who should be conquered. That's a really great perspective. Yeah, and, and then he becomes like that that father figure. He yeah. adopts Charlton Heston to his family. He gives him a Roman name. And, gives him his like sigil ring. And, and let's talk family as a theme here because we've already kind of talked about it a little bit but at this point in time ben hur can live a very comfortable life in rome he never has to see masala again he would inherit these great riches of of a now 
respected war hero. He becomes a, a charioteer, a famous charioteer. He is he is everything in Rome, everything you could ever ask for. But he still decides to leave all that and to try to go and find whatever happened to his family when Mazala locked them up and to go and take vengeance on Mazala for all of the things that he yeah. did. Yeah, and yeah, he, he never, like, just as he didn't lose that vengeance and like will to live will to live in the galleys he didn't lose it in the luxury yeah so it just shows like what really drives him yeah his resolve yeah yeah so yeah so he goes back and he doesn't accept the fact that even though it's been four years at this point that his family's dead even though he's heard absolutely nothing Mm. at all about them that he still thinks that there there has to be his family somewhere. He has to own. know fully yeah. what happened, and he still has hope. Hope is another theme. Yeah. It's a strong theme in this mm-hmm. where hope and faith kind of intermingle, but he like he always keeps his hope. Yeah. Yeah, even in some of the darkest moments of the film. And same with his family, because he does go back and they yes. they survived way longer than they should have been able to in the dungeons of, uh, like... Of, Judea. Yeah, yeah. And they're, like, deep, like, underground dungeons, never see the light of day kind of thing. The the door was almost like they couldn't open it because yeah. it was so... It was closed for so long. Yeah. yeah. Craziness. Yeah, yeah and, and even as his family, when they've developed leprosy, like, mm-hmm. they, they still believe that... Judah is going to come back and that he's going to be happy and, and, you know, conquer, love conquers all kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we didn't talk about the romance side of this either. No, we haven't that, talked about the romance the, side of this. So, right before Masala, like, sends Judah away and everything, there's, like, a. have only seen one other Charleston Heston movie, but there's this, like, classic Charleston Heston falling in love instantly. <laughs> Like the just look? yeah, the look and yeah. like it's like it's like the white man's overbite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so instant and like love at first sight, and it like he's kissing her within like a few hours in the movie or in like in their time, but in like another thirty seconds after seeing her, he's making out with her. Yeah, what a great line that is. I'm trying to remember exactly what he says. He, he's like, you oh. know, if. If, if you, if you were, weren't a bride, I would kiss you goodbye. Yeah. And then she said, if I weren't a bride, you wouldn't have to. Yeah. I wouldn't have to leave. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a very romantic scene. This movie has it all. And there's kind of even their relationship as, as it develops over time and her faith in him returning and her faith in helping his family through some like really difficult times like they yeah. when they have leprosy at that point when you have leprosy it's game you're over you're out. dead yeah, yeah you're cast yeah. out you're sent in the film to the valley of the lepers i couldn't find anything about the valley of the lepers that was something that as an idea really interested me so yeah, I, I dove into that a little bit online i couldn't find anything i'm sure there was probably some sort of location yeah. where they all congregated and because they're all sent out of town it, yeah. as soon as any leper comes into town rocks are being thrown at them yeah like there's a blind beggar who wouldn't accept the money from them because there were lepers involved and yeah yeah 
the cave that they were in. Yeah. When he goes back in is pretty cool. Like, just imagine all these lepers in like a four foot height. Yeah. Height cave. They're all like crouched, crouched over. over. There's little like fires. Trying to build little shelters. And yeah. Yeah. It's just an insanely miserable place. And they perfected that and we barely saw it. Yeah. Like we saw that and you feel it. There's so many themes to dive into. There's, we could talk about the theme of forgiveness a little bit. It's less prevalent, I would say. Like It's the end result, and yeah. I think it all comes from Esther. She is the one who leads um, Judah towards Jesus and his teaching. Like, she, her and Balthazar, yeah. who the is the king. The teachings on the mount. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, they see... We actually see... This This was cool because, like, growing up Catholic and everything, just yeah. to see someone else um, experiencing Sermon on the Mount mm-hmm. and you, like, he... Like, could you imagine being the one guy who didn't stick around to see the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> he's walking he, away. Yeah, you just see him walking away. <laughs> yeah. Judah's walking away. He's like, I got other shit to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I did, that did stick out for me as well. Cause yeah, the whole scene, again, as somebody who grew up with that religion, um, and, and not being necessarily religious anymore, it still brings that sense of awe, that sense yeah. of like, wow, this is such a, a, this is one of those moments in history. Yeah. It's an epic. Yeah. Like it, like the Bible is a great epic. Yeah. And you're it it's cool to see a different character experiencing the the things that we've heard yeah. from the the parables and stories in the Bible. And yeah. it's in his peripherals too. It's not like he's yeah, not like yeah. following Jesus throughout the film. It's just like, oh yeah. yeah there yeah. he is. Yeah. Time to go save my family. Yeah. And um wasn't it was it Pontius Pilate who called Judah the king of the Jews? At yes. one point, because he won the chariot race. Yeah. Yeah. So we haven't got there yet, but we're, no. we're already talking we're, about We're it. just all over the place. This, uh, like, we could sit here and talk for probably four hours about the movie, right? Yeah. So let it, we're going to just hit the highlights. But yeah, Pontius Pilate, the fact that there are just even other famous people from history yeah. in this. Like, as soon as Pontius Pilate was in the film, I was like, whoa, like, this is cool. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's Pontius, but yeah. Um, Pontius? Yeah, Like Pontius. ponchos? Yeah, Like almost. if you were to pluralize them? Yeah, like like punches, <laughs> but with a little bit of an accent. Ponchus. Ponchus. Yeah. Where's <laughs> your pinky for that? Yeah. Anyways. Um, <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's let's move on past themes. I think we hit the, the big ones that yeah. I wanted to talk about. Let's do effects and filming. So... The film itself is based on a novel from 1880, which we mentioned by Lou Wallace. It was the best-selling American novel until Gone with the Wind was published in 1936. Mm. And then after the 1959 movie, it actually again surpassed Gone with the Wind yeah. for most sold book. Yeah. It, most sold American novel, sorry. Um, I, I'm not going to lie. I kind of want to read it now. Yeah, honestly, I would. I've, uh, I've read quite a like I'm. I probably got into older books, but uh, no, about the same time I started getting into watching all the older movies, mm-hmm. and yeah, books are always better. Yeah, I, movies are accessible, and but books are always better. Yeah, I'm quite interested to read this at some point. I'll I'll do it for sure someday. Yeah. 
it's we mentioned this as well largest budget 15 million dollars at the time and largest sets built at the time so 15 million dollars i did the math it works out to about 150 million dollars in today's time which is wild like think about that that's a that's actually a pretty big budget like that's a pretty big hollywood budget at this point in time and maybe we take that for granted a little bit that a lot of big budget movies are coming out every year but if you go back like 20 years there'd be maybe one movie a year that ha- would have a budget of like 150 million yeah 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 and just like the the figures for each like little thing involved like it was four million dollars just for the chariot sequence yes which is only something like nine minutes of the race itself is only something like nine minutes of this four-hour movie yeah, yeah. of this but, four-hour movie but it's it's very important to everything in the movie like it's easily the most memorable scene in yeah, the film like yeah. i'm talking i was talking earlier about how great the gallery scenes are but the chariot race again i didn't feel like i breathed for nine minutes yeah yeah it was intense and a lot more brutal than i was expecting from that time i thought it would be mm-hmm. just like oh this guy bumped into that guy and he like screamed and fell yeah but no there's like act like there's people getting trampled yeah and uh the chariots are getting flipped it was basically like the craziest car chase of all time at that time probably yeah not and, almost like to that level and some of how this happened as well happened like happy accidents yeah um, yeah one of the most interesting highlights about the entire scene is that the shot where charleston heston falls out of his chariot or almost falls out of his chariot was actually a stuntman who accidentally was launched into the air and they cut that together because stuntman was like wow that was so cool we need to add this to the movie and that wasn't an original idea in the film because think Mm. about how difficult that would have been to film because it was real and he was injured during that he yeah he cut his lip he was the son of the one of the directors or producers yes yeah I was. I wanted to say this. Oh, in the I'm podcast, sorry. You want to talk about the last no, part? No, no. Well, what what part are you talking about? Because so they they clipped that together yeah, with the close yeah. up of Heston and I re I rewatched it right before we filmed it or yeah we started filming this. I watched it when I read that yeah. and it's cut extremely well to that you don't really see the difference. The transition, yeah, 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 and it was just um like I I thought it must have been real and yeah. the, the director um. He actually thought his son was about to die. Yeah, like he was like extremely scared because those those horses trampling people is like that's legit. Yeah, in the movie they were trampling dummies, but the dummies looked real. They, I was like, how did they film this? Yeah, how did they get these um all of these people like getting flipped and trampled mm-hmm. and everything? They were they did it so well. Yeah, not many films will make you ask how is this possible yeah. that i'm seeing this happen right now yeah yeah especially at a time before cgi yeah and the fact that basically um like both of the main characters are doing all of the mm-hmm. like almost all of the stunts like, yeah they're, Boyd they're, they're riding did every one of his own stunts yeah. in the film except for two and i don't know which two but the, I don't think he was under the carriage when he yeah, got trampled. Yeah, that was one of them. But that the was... person who was wearing, like, he was wearing, like, a full steel... It was him. So he 
when at the end where the chariot kind of mm. breaks and he's like holding yeah, yeah. on that was him holding yeah. on to that that wasn't a stunt person and he's wearing like a chain link yeah. armor yeah, to yeah. protect himself from that just crazy like to believe that that happened that somebody was okay yeah, with that yeah. i can't imagine doing that yeah i i think i would if i was in that situation oh but like God. he's getting paid a lot but yeah he also died a few years later I don't know yeah that's true coincidental <laughs> maybe not but Jesus. anyways <laughs> christ <laughs> story of christ uh yeah right. yeah let's talk like the fact that they both learned how to drive chariot and with four horses like that real yeah. four horse chariot yeah they were that trained to do that and heston himself picked it up very quickly he spent three hours a day practicing for mm. that scene and they they built two of those um the circuits they built two. One was mm. out, one they used for filming, and one they used for practice. Okay. And the horses could only do like uh, like eight runs a day, or like eight, mm. yeah, eight runs a day. I don't know how many times they went around. Yeah. But um, so it took a long time. Mm-hmm. And so, in contrast, Boyd being brought on fairly late had to learn chariot racing really quickly which is is kind of interesting as well because Charlton Heston actually was a horse racer prior to this mm. um so he kind of had that experience that that relationship with the horses already i was watching a video recently with Charlton Heston's son and the memories that he has of his father and one mm. of his earliest memories is being on set during the filming and the practicing of the chariots oh no and he said it was one of his a one of his favorite moments with his dad but he said it was one of his dad's favorite moments his entire life was learning how to race the chariots yeah, yeah. and doing those scenes the chariots themselves weighed 900 pounds oh yeah those horses were wow. dragging around 900 pounds of chariot I can see that horses don't have a problem with that, but it's still insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wild. Oh, another thing that I wanted to bring up, tiny little detail, was the um, in the boat scenes when the boats are sinking and he's trying to save people. He right. opens up the grates to where the extra rowers yes. were below. And the first guy out, he is missing his hand and he has a, yeah. a bone sticking out and right. like he's all bloody. Yeah. It was like not referenced or anything, but it was just that little detail that just added to yeah. the craziness of the situation. Yeah. That's something that I completely forgot about, but it was really distinct at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Moving back. Well, we'll get to yeah. the sea battle a little bit in a, in a minute here. The chariot race. I You mentioned that there was two arenas. Mm. The actual main arena that we see in the filming was actually quite carved out of a rock quarry and it took a year to carve that out wow yeah and so it was actually modeled off of a circus in jerusalem and many elements of that the arena itself were actually historically accurate to what the chariot race sort Hmm. of looked like i noticed that in the in so they're running around this loop but in the middle there's statues yes one of them looks like it's the hulk I think they predicted that. Or that's some flashback to the Avengers in like another version. I'm just kidding, but I wonder if it's it, I mean it's probably some sort of Roman god, right? Yeah, but I, like maybe like Ares or something, but I I I just it looked exactly like the Hulk. <laughs> it, especially in like Thor again. Dark World. Yeah. Like that looked like the Hulk. 
Yeah, I'm gonna have to pay attention to that when I rewatch the movie at some yeah. point. I'm definitely rewatching this movie at some yeah, point. This yeah. might even be a movie that you have to watch once a year. It's that good. I don't know if you could finish four it hours year. every year. That's like a lot of your life. Uh, to w- it might be make, worth it. <laughs> I watch the Matrix movies almost once a year, like yeah, yeah. all three of them. <laughs> so yeah, I, I watch might, like the Lord of the Rings and the Harry Potters yeah. way too often and. This, this might be going into a rotation for yeah, me. Yeah, that's fair. I wanted to talk really quickly about the sea battle. I didn't find too much about this, and I didn't want to dive as much into this one as the chariot race, but they actually used miniatures in a massive tank to film those ships. That's but the miniatures we... were still pretty big based on this picture right oh, here. Oh, yes, they were yeah. large miniatures. Yeah. Don't yeah. don't think that when I say miniatures that I, I mean like, like little wee dinky things. Yeah, they were still like twenty feet long, like ten feet high. Yeah, but they weren't the massive structures or massive ships that were like implied in the film because yeah. it's. I think it's uh, when the guy uh, Quintus Arius was taking control of the ship. He was like, "How many rowers?" They said, "I think two hundred. So really? Were, yeah, two hundred rowers, and they were switching out thirty every whatever shift right so 200 rowers like those are huge ships yeah and they looked massive yeah Uh, especially when they got on the second ship after they've been rescued and you kind of see that long shot down yeah yeah the ship it really made it seem like it was quite large so the filming on that just insane because it seemed like real massive ships yeah and, and it's really do- well done. Like, that shot in particular really stuck out in my mind. Like, it was just a really beautiful shot as you see kind of the sun and, and it, it reflecting off yeah. of the water in the ship there. But and, and as I was watching, I was looking at details, and the the waves looked real. Yes. Like, I thought, how did they film this again? Because, like, that's where they got me. It's like, I was so involved yeah. that I noticed. I was like how, like, how is this so real? Yeah. I did notice that as well. Like, the, the water is very realistic it looks like they're out on the mediterranean Mm -hmm. you already brought up the the extras in the film but they actually had 200 camels as well as 2500 horses on film as well here Mm -hmm. and maybe this is where we talk about the rumor and whether or not we we can confirm or deny it yeah this movie is on a lot of lists for like best of all time Mm -hmm. but it's also on one list of potentially worst of all time yeah Animal rights, animal, is what yeah, you're yeah. About. But mostly environmental and animal rights. There's like a, a list out there. This one may have they may have killed a hundred horses in the filming of this. Yeah, we're not sure. We've we've heard the rumors before. That was something that Jess said to me when we started watching this movie. But trying to research it what i found online was that it was actually referring to a previous version of the film the 1925 silent film i can't find anything online to corroborate so as a viewer if if you find some solid evidence one way or the other i'd be interested in seeing it yeah but because i saw that only five died in the in the first version but 100 did in this 19 or 1959 version right but it's disputed like we don't know yeah. So that's that's another little interesting historical thing yeah. where we wouldn't allow this to happen today. Exactly. But in the past, like horses were just part of the props. Yeah, and I could believe that if 
if the word got out back in 1959 about that, that that would have probably changed some of the rules around Hollywood yeah, and, yeah. and what you're allowed and not allowed to do with animals. But because then, after this, there are pretty strict requirements about how you're allowed to treat animals on film. Yeah, um, we, whenever that came about, maybe this did have to do with it. I don't yeah. know. I don't know what people knew at the time. This is tiny. I saw a blue jug on someone's table, and it looked a little plastic. Oh yeah, that was weird. Yeah, yeah. I did think about that too. I was like, how did they get that in Roman times? How did that Roman jug come to be? Um, yeah, I didn't look it up either. It is one of those things that does tickle your brain. Yeah, a bit. yeah, yeah. Like, if you're looking for things, you might see that. Yeah. Um, one of my main notes was just like how amazing both the sets and the uniforms were. They were just so like everything was real. Yeah, it, it just blew my mind. You for were that very time. quickly invested in the movie and very quickly like felt there yeah it, it, yeah this the set and the setting really really captured your attention and like this wasn't just a few sets that were nice yeah every set and there were so many sets yeah because we go from we start in Judea, we end up on the galleys then we are in Rome and we're at like the big like entrance into rome yeah. where the emperor is sitting there watching his legions yeah. enter um and then out in the the like almost wilderness like yeah the, as on, he's the as sermon he's, on the mount the yeah. cave um the valley of the lepers yeah and even just in judea there's like several scenes there mm -hmm. because there's like uh ben her's house and then there's masala's house yeah and outside of their houses yeah it's yeah. just like every there was so much built i think i read that there was like a million pounds of plaster and wow. forty thousand square feet of wood mm. used for the sets it's Holy. just massive again it's it's unheard of at the time that's what made this film so epic is the attention the detail how much had going on I think one of the only films that ever is going to rival this in that scale, and something that we have to watch later, is Lawrence of Arabia, yeah. which we've talked about in the past. I want to talk score next. All right. So, Miklos Rosa is the main writer, composer for the film. He actually scored almost 100 films throughout his lifetime. Very important. Wow in film he had 17 oscar nominations mainly for older films i did look through though his filmography as well as his oscar nominations and i didn't really see a lot that stuck out to me that i was i knew of per se but maybe if you're a big student of film if you like older movies you might know him um from those older films uh, he was actually more passionate about concert music than he was in scoring for films. But obviously he took this on. He won an Oscar for this. He, the way he developed this was he actually listened to a lot of Greek and Roman classical music and hmm. incorporated that into the film's score, which it's really a fitting score. It's very orchestral there's a lot of you know there's drums in some moments it's very different throughout the film and, yeah. and very captures this big epic mood that the film is trying to capture 
Yeah, and like the rises and falls in every yeah it, like important scene. It builds up, it builds up mm. the tension, and then it all crashes down on you. What I found really interesting actually about the score is there's no lay motifs for the main characters. And oh. what what that means is that a lay motif is essentially like a short reoccurring music or like a theme song almost that repeats throughout the film yeah, to yeah. represent something. Re- represent like a person or like their feelings or like yeah it's like or a location the, yeah or like, something like that like harry potter has his own like yes there's hedwig's song yes and things Darth like vader that. yeah, Darth, yeah. One of the, probably one of the more famous songs yeah. of all time like the da 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 like stuff like that so this film actually there's not a single point in the entire runtime where the film repeats any music yeah. he wrote he wrote i can't even remember how many additional hours wow. of of music for this and they had to cut it down into the film something really cool this is kind of fits in a legacy kind of fits in a score is that the score of this film actually heavily influenced the works of John Williams. Oh, the yeah, yeah, who the, did the Harry Potter and who did, did Harry Potter, so many. Star Wars, yeah. like I said, Darth Vader, Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, all the most iconic things. Yeah, well, well that's kind of crazy because those are iconic things that kind of repeat. During yeah, movies, exactly. But he then this guy didn't do that. So much going on yeah, that you could yeah. take like different elements yeah, for yeah. it and use it towards whatever you wanted to portray yeah, in your yeah. films. That's fair. But it's it's such a crazy idea that these films like what I, what we just listed. Think about that for a second. Jaws, Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Harry Potter. Name four more iconic films scores than those four films. I, I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could name four more iconic film music. Yeah, like off the top of your head, it's those are the ones you reference. Yeah. So to think that those were impacted by this is crazy. Yeah, from like 30 to 60 years later, like yeah. 50, yeah, in, in that range. Yeah. So again, as somebody who's a fan of movies, just to... to find that roots and that legacy in in the scores is so interesting to me i did listen to it a couple of days ago while i was doing research it's kind of interesting because we compare it to those but i wouldn't say that it's something that i want to listen to or or it's mm. something that was stuck in my head per se and that's yeah. kind of the reason why i went back to it to listen to it by no means is it not a very well written piece of music mm. now that i'm thinking about the comparisons what makes a really good soundtrack? Is it that you don't notice it, but you feel it? Or is it that you remember it? So well, th- that's there's two camps there, probably. And I think as well, the fact... And this is why I wanted to bring up the leitmotif, um, mm-hmm. the use of that, yeah. is that I think when you tie a song to a character or a setting or a mood or something like that and you use it over and over again it becomes very memorable it's something that it's a callback when you when you call back in your yeah, mind the yeah. memory of those scenes or those characters you remember the music along with so them. it's almost like that is essential for series or like multiple movies in a row whatever yeah but not for a standalone four-hour film yeah but there's probably like if you were to dissect the whole soundtrack, I bet you could find a little bit. Maybe There's not. There's definitely similarities yeah, throughout, yeah. but it, it never repeats. Yeah, wow, okay. Yeah. That's unreal. Really interesting. Yeah. 
let's take a quick look back at the times. What I wanted to see was what the big events were in 1959 and 1958 when they would have been doing filming. And what I actually found while doing this research is that the movie itself was on a lot of the list of big moments of 1959. Oh, way. <laughs> like, no way. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it was, the list was like, Fidel Castro comes into power in Cuba. Yeah. The Dalai Lama flees to India. Ben-Hur was released. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So not much else, I guess, besides those two other big events. Yeah. But yeah, then a movie. <laughs> yeah wild and again looking around like 1958 1960 i didn't see that for films mm. the same way that i did with yeah. this yeah, which was wild cool. huh. <laughs> so it kind of interesting there i don't really have much else for a look back at the times so let's talk legacy now so this is really the height of roman films in hollywood we're followed after this by spartacus barabbas the Fall of the Roman Empire, and Cleopatra. So, Spartacus. You and I talked about this separately, and how the role of Mazzala was, was proposed to a lot of different actors. Yeah. Kirk Douglas was actually asked to take on the role of Mazzala. He denied it because he wanted the role of Ben-Hur instead, but they already had Charlton Heston. At this point in time... Kirk Douglas is in his 40s. He's a little older for the role anyway. So he says no. And instead, he makes Spartacus in 1960 to compete with yeah. Ben-Hur. Another great film. You which haven't is, seen Spartacus. No, yes. like which is amazing because this is like three three big movies in a row that are all just created because one person was like, oh, I didn't get the thing. Yeah. <laughs> like the director didn't get the Ten Commandments and it's, so he made Ben-Hur and then the actor that didn't get Ben-Hur made Spartacus. That's probably honestly how Hollywood runs. It's yeah, just yeah. running on people jealous of other people's uh, everyone's success. Everyone's egos, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hollywood was like, definitely... Oh, you made that? Ego. I'm gonna make this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so he made that. You haven't watched it, but I'll give you some comparisons, contrast, contrast. I think that in terms of, oh no, what's the word I was thinking of? So runtime, Spartacus is a, a bit shorter than this. So the pacing of Spartacus, in my opinion, was paced just a little bit better than Ben-Hur. Like mm. Ben-Hur, honestly, in the last 40 minutes, it slows down quite a bit. It felt like there was maybe a few spots where the film could have ended. Spartacus from start to finish was really well done. They both have very large casts, like very large extras. For whatever reason, with Spartacus, they used some set pieces that were very obviously like in a room oh, while they were outdoors. Yeah, and that yeah. kind of, you notice it. It's, yeah, it's yeah. noticeable. It's almost like if um, you watched the wizard of oz and it's you could kind of tell that you're in like a set you're not yeah, outside yeah, yeah. doing stuff yeah. and so some of those kind of stand out in my mind like it's not as the cinematography isn't as strong yeah but they both have their positives and negatives they're both great films mm. so oscars this the reason why we're watching yes. this is for the oscar period let's talk oscars so the film itself won 11 Oscars the year it came out. Was which... it not 11 out of 12 possible? <laughs> it was something like that. And so the the 12th one was for writing. They couldn't nail down exactly who would get the Oscar for the mm. writing. So they just didn't 
put in for that one. Right. They, they would have won all of them if they just figured out this one little thing. But yeah, at that time, from what I understand, they won 11 out of 12 of like the top Oscars. Probably like not, the main ones too, yeah, right? Because yeah, there's kind the of some ones. offshoot ones that they wouldn't have been eligible for. Yeah. So um, best picture. Yeah, obviously best picture, best director, best actor in a leading role, Heston. Best actor in a supporting role, Hugh Griffith as mm-hmm. the Sheik, yeah. which is is really interesting because the Sheik, again, he's only in maybe like 20 minutes, 30 minutes yeah. of the film total. But he's part of like the soul of the film though. Yes, yeah. He's like the Timon and Pumbaa of the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For our younger viewers, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe, well, yeah, they have the new live action one now. But anyway, best cinematography, obviously, as well. And then many more after that. This was the record for the most Oscars at the time until the Titanic came out almost 40 years later. Yeah. yeah. And then after that, it was the the movie after that that captured this many was The Lord of the Rings, which we've also referenced Mm. during this episode. What's really impressive, though, is the number of Oscars they won at that time, like you said, it captured almost every single Oscar that they could have possibly won. Whereas looking ahead 40 years later with the Titanic, at this point in time, there's like double or triple the number of Oscars that are you're eligible to win. Yeah, yeah. So this movie stands alone as one of the most celebrated films of all time. Yes, but at the same time, there were less movies probably put out that year compared to when the Titanic was put yeah. out. If you're making that comparison, but it still stands to be like the most celebrated. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good point, yeah. though. Yeah. It's rated the second best American epic of all time behind Lawrence of Arabia, mm. one that you and I have been talking about for a while yeah, to watch. Yeah. Oh, I, I really want to watch it. Like, I really, really, yeah. really want to watch it. But at the same time, we've done this big, massive epic from, yeah. like, this time period at this point. I, we got to leave it for a little while, I yeah, think. Yeah, I think so. I'm glad we did this one because it was, it's been on the list. Like, yeah. so is Lawrence of Arabia, but I don't know, Ben-Hur, it, it was amazing. It was, yeah, it was something special. It was a viewing experience. Mm. There's also a connection to Lawrence of Arabia. I had to dive real deep into this. But Jack Hawkins, who plays Quintus, Quintus Arius, Arius yeah. um, is the General Allenby in Lawrence of Arabia. He's, he's a fairly main character in that film as well. And that's kind of Jack Hawkins, his Signature career in a nutshell. Yeah, 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 he is playing military generals yeah. in films. So, I brought this up earlier. Stephen Boyd was also involved in the film The Fall of the Roman Empire. He actually got to ride another chariot during that film as well. No way. However, the film, it failed. It did not have the same impact as this did. And it ended the love for Roman epics of the 19th in the 1960s. So, So, he was involved in, like, the one that started it. Or, not the one that started, but the one that skyrocketed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then at the end as well. However, the film is really important to cinema because it was the major inspiration for Ridley Scott's Gladiator. No way. Okay. So, So, I I could see so many comparisons of Ben-Hur to Gladiator. mm -hmm. The rise and fall in the beginning. He's a big shot in the beginning. Then he gets betrayed and gets uh, sent down to the bottom. And then he works his way back up slowly. And then when he gets to the end, the rival 
Roman emperor guy cheats and tries to kill him, and then he still succeeds. Yeah. Where the fall of the Roman Empire, I think, is the major inspiration is it it actually is looking into Commodus's life. Okay. Um, so there's kind of that similarity in like the exact time period yeah, of yeah. when Rome that we're looking at. Okay, cool. So that's kind of where oh, the comparison I would love to there. see that just because of my love for Gladiator. Yeah. I've seen Gladiator cool. a lot. I have seen Gladiator yeah. a lot as well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it would be cool to do a back-to-back of those two, now that we know what the inspiration yeah, of the time yeah. to them. Um, but yeah, The Fall of the Roman Empire is not a cinematically revered film. Yeah. Sequels, prequels, reboots. Let's do that now. All right. So, the 1959 yeah. edition is a remake. It is. Of yes. a remake. Yes. <laughs> of a book. Of a book, yes. The original is a 1907 short film. Let that sink in for a sec. It's a short film. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what they captured in it. No, yeah. But for a four-hour movie, while we're sitting there and going, I wish they dug into that a little bit more. Yeah. Picture what a short film would have had, <laughs> which is followed after that by the 1925 silent film. Kind of interesting. I, I'm not a big silent film fan so i i don't know how to picture those or i don't think we've gone into them far enough to be able to i've enjoyed parts of some but yeah i haven't like i've I've watched clips i've followed people yeah like i've like charlie chaplin yeah obviously yeah but we haven't i've never sat down and watched a full one yeah anyways continue that's something else we'll do we'll do it someday yeah but it's not going to be a, a mainstay of this podcast by any yeah, means. It might just be a little clip. <laughs> a little clippy. Yeah. So <laughs> since then, there have actually been two remakes since this movie. So I'll let you talk about the latest one in a sec here. There was actually a 2003 American-Canadian animated version. No way. That was 80 I'm... minutes. It was produced by and starring Charlton Heston. In his final role in cinema. Oh my god. Yeah. How did I miss that? <laughs> yeah. It was a straight to DVD adaptation. Very interesting. I think it was more for kids at that point is what they were directing it towards. Interesting. Yeah. I would love to see like at least a YouTube video about that. I'm not going to watch the whole thing. but Go ahead. Talk about the 2016 version. Just basically it... All I know, really, is that it fell flat horribly. It's kind of an un- unnecessary money grab. Like, with a movie, with the effects as great as they are, the acting, the sets, the scenes, why would you ever try to redo that? It wasn't rated well. It was the biggest, one of the biggest flops of 2016. I don't know why. I don't know why you do it in the same medium. I don't know. What do you what do you think? Make a play of it? No. <laughs> Instead of the same media. What do you mean? So what I'm going to going with this is what I could see with the Ben Hur franchise mm. is being expanded into a TV series. Okay. I I think that similar to the Spartacus. Yes. Yeah. 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 Because think about how often throughout the film you're like, oh, I I wonder like I wish they explored that. I wish they explored you know. Ben-Hur's rise into the charioteer scene. Yeah, yeah. Like, you could have a whole season, basically, where he's a charioteer. 
Yeah. Just or, like the intensity of it. Yeah. Or you you just started reading the Brandon Sanderson book. Which one did I give you again? Way of Kings. Way of Kings, yeah. So so you just started you read the Ray of Kings. And so think about like Kaladin's story arc where yeah. he's the bridge slave. Yeah. Think yeah. about the initial like Ben Hur being introduced into the galley that we don't see, and maybe he has some sort of mentor in the galley yeah, who, yeah, yeah. who pushes him to stay and alive. Who, who was his first commander? Commander, yeah. and like, how did he survive his first year? Yeah, because that first year, no one makes out out alive, and he has made it three. How does how does Mazala rule in those years when Ben Hur is yeah. not around? Yeah. There's there's so many interesting things that you can do with a series like this. Yeah, I, and a little bit more of the Sheik would be great. Yes, yeah. And Quite maybe cast somebody who's actually Middle Eastern. Appropriate, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> I, I really think that you could do something along the lines of the Spartacus TV reboot and make it really good. I I really want this. Yeah, I, this, that'd be unreal. This idea made me want to go and watch Spartacus the TV series. And you could so the other point that I was thinking as well is you can you can expand on the relationship between Judah and Mizala. You can have the flashbacks maybe here and there to between the homoerotic early childhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you could you don't make their relationship fall apart as quickly. Yeah, you have yeah, kind of yeah. those moments of tension, or maybe maybe they don't know that they're in the same crowd or something like that and they're both taking different stances on yeah. on some event happening and, and stuff like that yeah like i want to see more the depth of um masala's character like how far will he go because he's gone pretty far but we only see like small bits of it really like i want to see him like uh what's the in game of thrones the guy who like feeds people to dogs Ramsey. 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 Ramsey yeah. Bolton. Yeah. So if we could see his like how far he'll go into his Ramsey Bolton character, mm. because it, between him sending uh, Judah away and when he comes back, that four years, what did he do? Because, I've got an idea here. I've yeah. got an idea here. Is we we're going back to their childhood anyway to yeah. see their interactions between each other. Yeah. Let's see his interaction with his father mm, and yeah. how that shapes him into this Roman legionnaire. As yeah, well. yeah, yeah. And, and and the homoerotic parts. Yes, too. especially <laughs> that part. <laughs> um, but yeah, and his. What was his time away like, too? So there, yeah. there's multiple things to talk about there's there. There's just, yeah, I think you could really make a great TV series yeah. out of this. And yeah. you've got the books. The The books are quite long as well. So you have the source material to make it. And Hollywood, just do it for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. We're giving you all these great ideas for free. <laughs> We're not even advertising on this. You're welcome. Just reference us or something. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Maybe pay us a bunch, too. That'd be great. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. I don't think we're getting any of that money, but I don't know. Maybe Unless we, can we make it later. It. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how Hollywood works. Yeah. <laughs> All right. At this point, let's say our personal reviews, partner factor. And then if there's any other great scenes, great lines, anything like that you want to talk about, let's do that and wrap her up. Go ahead. What's, did you and Annabelle get to watch this together? No, we didn't. Uh, um, she's studying at the current time and, yeah. uh, yeah, just, she was, she got to see a little bit, but not enough to really 
get into it. I got into it though. I had to watch it in two nights. Yep. And that intermission couldn't have come at a better time. <laughs> nice. Because I yeah like. It, so my it was my suggestion perfect. was right then. Yeah yeah it was. I really like the intensity of the actors. Yeah. And the setting in the scene like that whole time of like a a Jesus adjacent main character yeah that was so cool but especially how he intersects with that time and the action scenes like the love scenes whatever the action scenes nailed it the chic was great yeah overall there's very little complain to complain about this film there's just so many great things happening there's so many every everybody brought their a game into this except for the love factor i think ah I don't know. It was fine. It wasn't central, so that's fine. Yeah. It, it was and it wasn't. It's just like... His family was more important yeah. than his love interest was. And she became like family and yeah. like it was just the initial love interest was just like... It was just so quick. And yeah. it was just like two 50s romantic guys super like awesome and in power and the girl just swoons in and mm. they're in love and they make out and then that's it. I don't know. Maybe it's just Charles Heston movies. I don't know well enough, but that's exactly what happened in uh, Soylent Green. So yeah. Uh, so I watched with my buddy Mike, and we both really enjoyed the film a lot. It didn't feel like overly long. Like I never looked at my phone the entire film. I didn't look at my mm. phone. I was so invested. Pacing of the film is really great up until the last little bit, maybe. And this is where Mike's had the comment of, you know, the last forty-five minute probably could have trim, been trimmed down a bit. There was three to four really great moments where it felt like it could have ended mm. and I could have been satisfied with the conclusion of the story, but I'm I'm happy with what we got at the end. Yeah, the redemption through Jesus. And yeah, like the, uh, we didn't even talk about it. I I knew they were going to get healed at the yeah, end. Yeah. I was just waiting for it. Does, does that dampen the film a little bit? Does it get a little too like, Miracle-y. I don't know. I don't know because it, it's I, I think like I don't know. It, yeah, it was a happy ending. Yeah. I didn't think we were gonna get a perfectly wrapped up happy ending, and that's what I said. Like at one point when when she lies to him and says like yeah. they're gone, they're dead. I, I I said to Mike, I was like, this is this is what Hollywood's missing. Like a complex ending that isn't perfectly tied up. Like mm. like if it ended if it ended right there. And he went on the rest of his life not knowing about that. Like, I, I would have been happy with that because I yeah. would have been like, you know, like, he tried his best and he, he came so close. But at the end of the day, you can't you can't take on the world and and just win, win. everything. Yeah, yeah. And um, he he did. Yeah, basically. he got everything yeah. he wanted. I mean, he and he struggled his yeah. whole life to get there, yeah. but... Now that's it not to say ended. this is one of the greatest films yeah, of all time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> of course. We we barely have anything to say because no one can say anything. It's amazing, but yeah, it, there is it. It is a little old, but the love ideas at that time they weren't developed mm-hmm. well enough in film. So I think it could have been a lot better. I would love to find out more about if other t- films at that time were doing love like amazingly, but it wasn't in this. Yeah. And it, I'm not even into love movies. Why do I care about this? I don't know. It's just because it's <laughs> it the only... It sounds like you care a lot about it's this. Cause, it's because it's the only flaw. <laughs> it's the only flaw. 
and it pissed me off because it could have been fully flawless. That's fair. But you still have to agree this is one of the greatest movies of all time. Yes. Objectively yes. speaking, yes. this is one of the greatest films. It is. It's probably going to my top 20. Let's add it to the 100 movies on my top 20. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So so, what lines you got? Let's hear let's hear your lines. It's hard to get them exactly in an older movie sometimes. Yeah. Oh, actually, before you say that, the one piece that I was gonna add when you were saying it felt there was some old timey bits is I think now I've again I recently watched Spartacus as well. I think that the the old ancient history works really well with older films. And I don't know what it is. No, and maybe it's yeah. the speech patterns of the 50s and 60s just works with my imagination yeah, of what they yeah. looked like back then. But it, I I actually think that I would prefer to watch those movies any over... Oh, I'm, I'm about to say it. I, I think it fits better than Gladiator. I think that the acting... Yeah, the voices and everything. Yeah. Like the sound of it, the feel of it. Yeah. Yeah, because Gladiator. No, you you get it. You get so into Gladiator, you don't even realize. But but the accents are completely wrong in Gladiator, whereas they don't feel so wrong because yeah. they feel old. Yeah. Because they are old to us. It's that transatlantic yeah. speech pattern. Yes, exactly. And you know what? I want to see more movies these days, like recreating that almost perfectly, where with all the flaws of it. Right. If you're gonna make an old movie, make it like, like that. Maybe not all of them, but <laughs> at least, like I could see it working well. Yeah, maybe someday we'll get some sort of like Quentin Tarantino esque actor or director yeah. who has that kind of old... ability to bring it back. Yeah, yeah that kind of yeah. vision. Yeah. So now let's get into the quotes. Sorry. The scene where Judah escapes from, uh, like his initial capture and he races through the dungeons mm. that was that was the first scene where i was like really into the locations because right. i was like how did they get dungeon like yeah like, they, like i wasn't expecting such expansive sets right and then so that blew my mind and then um he gets up to wherever masala is and they have their little back and forth He's, the war room kind of thing yeah yeah in their interaction, Masal is like, you have given me your help. You didn't want to, but now they will fear me. Yeah. So that wasn't the exact quote, but that line right. was perfect because after that, um, Judah goes into, God grant me ve vengeance until I return. Masal is like, return? What are you talking about? <laughs> you're going to the galleys, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're not coming back. But obviously he was like feeling that like full on belief and hope and uh, vengeance will be fulfilled right away. Like he's like, I'm not going to stop. That was like where it all kicked off. Yeah. Kind of. And actually going back a little ways, this is a quote that I wrote down is is when Mazzala kind of grabbed Judah around the shoulders. He said, man, this is going to be just like old times. And I was like, no, it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the way I wrote that down was pretty funny. Best friends, nothing has changed, dash, everything changed. Because that's how quick it happened. Like, yes. You, like, there's a little bit of nuance there, but there's not enough, really. Yeah. But they had to just get it across. Whatever, it worked yep. fine enough, but... um. Yeah, it just, like, that change happened drastically. And Charlton Heston's facial expressions, he's got this, like, 
Like his skin is too tight to his face. <laughs> like everything. He's like a lizard person. Yeah, yeah. Everything he does is just so exuberant. He's just yeah. like you like read everything. It's just so obvious. Yeah. And in that scene where like they're becoming they where they meet up part again. ways when he's just staring at him with yeah, that intensity. Yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah, right. Yeah, and his jaws kind of like yeah, yeah. Like, I know exactly. Everything's what, like tight. I yeah, don't know. I know exactly the facial expression yeah. you're talking about. Early on, there was. Uh, the concept was spoken. I don't know by no. It was the guy who Masala was replacing in the very yes. beginning, and he said, um, "How do you fight an idea, especially a new one?" Mm. Because that's when they were talking about the Messiah that was yes, and the introduction rumored to be around. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How do you fight this idea? And Masala comes in, and he's like, "I'll stamp it out. Like, there's no new ideas. There's whatever. Like, yeah. he's just." He's going to steamroller it and um, with his ambition and the might of the empire, like yeah. all this belief that he has in that. Yeah, that's like the first time that you're like, whoa, all right, Mazala, this guy's like not a great dude. Yeah. He's, he, he's like, he wants to be a tyrant. Um, um, oh, another great quote from Judah is, you may conquer the land, you may slaughter the people. Um Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about, too. The beginning of that line I was just talking about was, you can break a man's skull, you can arrest him, you can throw him into a dungeon, but how do you control what's up here? Tapping his head. How do you fight an idea? Yeah. Especially a new idea. And then, yeah. If you were not a bride, I would kiss you goodbye. If I were not a bride, there would be no good nights to be said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, the, while you're looking this up, I I wrote down... That the love scenes are very operatic and they add yeah, to the yeah, epicness yeah. of the film, in my opinion. So you weren't a big fan, but for me, they did add an aspect to the film that I did enjoy. Yeah, that's fair. You may conquer the land, you may slaughter the people, but that is not the end. We will rise again. Yes, yeah. Only four of the actors or people involved in this were from Hollywood. Really? Everyone else was international. Yeah, basically. it was very well acclaimed for being a, an international mix. Yeah, so that's something that like, we didn't even talk no. about or really think about. I did but mention that uh, that Esther was played by an Israeli, Israeli woman. Yeah, and the uh, Sheik was... Oh, he was Welsh, actually. So yes, like, he was Welsh. Yeah, he didn't, yeah. yeah, you said he was Irish before. We kind of skipped over this. We briefly mentioned it, but for me... It was. It felt like a really big moment when Judah was adopted. For something about that moment where he's adopted, it really stood out to me. It felt like like a big moment in in his life. Yeah, it's it's like he had validation, I guess, that he mm-hmm. could have been whatever he wanted. He could he could be Masala. Mm-hmm. He could have done anything basically through this drive that he has, and maybe that wasn't unlocked until Masala happened to him. But now he has like this belief that he can do something. I don't know. What do you think? For me, it was it was just like the the love that Quintus had for for Ben Hur and and the admiration and like and his character. Like Quintus saw something in Ben Hur that like he might not have even seen in himself at that point in time. Like maybe he you know he he believed himself. He he got himself out of that situation, but. I don't know. They had they had a really interesting relationship, and I really I, liked 
that. Yeah, because, like, as a slave, he had to be so, like, almost inhuman in his um, vengeance, like, Mm -hmm. directive. But then this Quintus Arius showed him that not all Romans are horrible. Yeah. And that he, like, he tries to go back after and, like, reason a little bit. He doesn't really reason with Masala. He's basically cast him aside. But he's not completely against... Rome, it's just yeah. Masala at this point. How great was it though, that final scene between Pontius Pilate and Ben Hur, where Pontius says, You know, I, I knew you back in Rome. I'm friends with your adoptive father, yeah. but the minute that I go back to my throne there, yeah. I am an operative for Rome yeah. and you are my enemy. Yeah. And I never want to see you again. Yeah, if I see you like we'll kill you. Like yeah. you're you might you you should flee yeah 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 Yeah, that was a great scene i was hoping to get a little bit more of like the pontius and jesus scene but we've seen that every easter i guess so it's not like we really need that do you think this is one of the greatest portrayals of jesus in film in the people's reaction to him in a like the awe factor yeah, yeah but i can't say that I, I don't think I could say that it's the best with, like, I'd have to look into it. Yeah, I, that's fair. I, in my opinion, I think that what makes it so great is he's not the central figure and they make him mm. more into a force. They, this he's, is this is the one time where he feels big. Yeah, he feels yeah. like, like he's, the guy. Yeah, like he's impacting all of this real world stuff that yeah. is also impacting Judah. Yeah. And... And like the Romans and everybody, it's yeah, yeah. You know what? I could see how there's a strong argument for that position. Yeah. yeah. Let's let's talk really quickly. Best picture, Oscars. Do you think this deserved best picture? Hundred percent. Yeah. We haven't even watched the other film yet. I can already say that there's no way any film in 1959 could have surpassed no, the greatness we, of this. No, we watched the trailers for the other, like some of the other nominees, nom- nominees but this one, I can't see, the based on the storylines and the, the trailers of the other ones, yeah. I can't see them possibly even edging in. I don't want to spoil the name of the next movie we're doing for 1959's Oscars. What I will say, though... It's actually a higher rated film from 1959 than Ben-Hur. So. Higher rated. Higher rated on IMDb than Ben-Hur for 1959. It didn't win the best picture. No. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. But did it stay? Is it in the top 200 films of all time too? It has to be. It's higher in the top 250 films. Huh. Okay. So So for best picture picture it it lost didn't even get nominated no it's picture okay did it turn into a cult classic it's a classic it is a classic everything's a classic back then (laughs) (laughs) everything's a classic it gets old enough yeah yeah all right well i'm excited i don't even remember what one it was because i should know (laughs) but i'm excited as if i'm a listener (laughs) yeah i'm i'm very excited to compare and contrast and, and watching this, this is why we watched this one first, too. It's because we knew that this one won Best Picture. We wanted to see what the standard was for Best Picture in yeah. 1959. <laughs> I want to watch 1955 to 1965 and compare the Best Pictures in all of these years. Because I don't think you can beat this. Like, mm. I really don't think in that 10-year span that 
that this film is beaten either the five years before or the five years after this. This is something special cinematically. But we've got this other movie. It didn't win any Oscars, mm. but it's more better rated know than Ben Hur. <clears throat> so I can see a better story. Yeah, maybe that. My guess is that it's a better storyline and it flows just perfectly or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the runtime's like a crisp two hours yeah. or something like and that. The pacing's... Like, it couldn't have beat Best Picture because of all the... Like, the set in the setting and the... And the scope. Yeah, the scope of Ben-Hur is just mm-hmm. astronomical compared to anything. Mm-hmm. Another story being better and maybe... Actors who were a little more genuine, and maybe, and maybe the other thing is because we're we're gonna spec. Let's speculate a little bit. Mm. I wonder if the other film is more accessible and more easily rewatchable. Maybe it just you know it has that better runtime. It's it's got maybe some really great moments that you want to see over and over again. So that's that's my thoughts there. I'm really gr- glad that we watched this one first because. I'm going in a little bit critical of the other one, knowing how great this one is. And I'm really interested to see what my thoughts are. And maybe, you know what? Maybe the other film is objectively better. Like, maybe, like you said, the story's crisper, yeah, the acting's yeah. a little bit better. But Maybe it's more novel, like a, a concept that hadn't been seen yet. Whereas right. this, it was basically, it's almost a Bible story. It, it's, like, its tagline is uh, this... A story of the Christ, yeah. whatever. So, shall we leave it there? Leave her, leave her audience guessing of what the next movie is going to be for the nineteen fifty nine Oscars. Series? Yeah, let's do it. It's just like the wait for the Oscars to be announced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm more excited about the nineteen fifty nine Oscars right now than I am about the twenty twenty two Oscars. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Hope everyone enjoyed the podcast. I had an absolute blast. I cannot recommend this movie enough. Uh, please, if you are a fan of films, yeah. watch this. <clears throat> Give yourself the three and a half hours of time and watch this. Maybe four hours because you're going to need a pee break. Although yeah, there's the, an intermission the, for that. Yeah, there's like a 10 minute intermission. Yeah. Some good music there. You could pee to that. <laughs> yeah. If you can hear it from your living room. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. All Have right. a good one. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Keep listening. Please, please Please. keep listening.